Hello, and welcome to the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club podcast, the place where curiosity is welcomed and no topic is too taboo to tread. I'm your host, Jonathan Doe, and today I'm sitting here over Skype with Guy S. Fragments, or Guy Pierce, the founder of Sculpting Fragments and the director behind The Rope Maiden and Difficulty Breathing. How are you doing today, man? I'm very well, thank you, man. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Of course, I'm really glad we found the time to make this happen. I think I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. I hope so. <laughs> I think yeah, it's my um it's my first appearance on a podcast, and um I think it's the first time I've been able to like speak freely without having to write everything out in terms of interviews. So I think I should be able to get a lot off my chest. <laughs> awesome. I'm honored to have you on for sure. Um, one of my first questions is is mm. your name. So on mm. your Facebook, you go by Guy S. Fragments on The Rope Maiden. Uh, you're credited as Guy Pierce. How do you want to mm-hmm. be referred to? Uh, <laughs> you can just call me Guy. Um, thing is, the uh, yeah, so my real name is Guy Pierce. Um, so when I, when I made The Rope Maiden, obviously I just made it under my, my real name. But um, unfortunately, there is also a very famous Australian actor with the exact same name as, as I have. So any sort of search in Google or whatever will automatically just get this uh, Guy Pierce actor come up. So um, so I kind of shot myself in the foot a little bit with using my, my real name and not a stage name <laughs> with that first Road Maiden thing. Uh, since then, though, I mean, I, I have, I used to do YouTube and I had the, the alias Sculpting Fragments. I was just the name of my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And so I've just been using this sculpting fragments tag for any sort of like movie related um, online social presence for the most part. And my uh, my Facebook page was originally sculpting fragments, uh, but then because Facebook is a pain in the ass and they don't let you have fake names, they were like, "Well, no, fragments is not a real name, or you can't have sculpting as a name or something." So I just managed to like to get through the system and have my name as Guy. S fragments so some people kind of know who I am but yeah it was just kind of fudging the books a little bit but uh you can just call me guy <laughs> does the s stand for anything or is it to make it sound like it says guys no well it's it's, it's sculpting it's sculpt- I just always went by sculpting fragments so I just kind of put the s as in sculpting as a middle name so I think if I just put guy fragments um because I couldn't use sculpting fragments no one would know like who I was, you know, under my profile name. So I, it's all just a big mess, to be honest with you. I should have just had a, a fake name from the start, but I, I never planned it to get this far. Well, thanks for clearing that up. That It's difficult when there's other people that have similar names. You can get lost or get confused. I know. And stuff. I just need to become like more famous than that Australian guy, and that will just solve all my problems. Yep. <laughs> um well, another question I have is, where are you from originally? I know that you're currently based out of Japan. Um, is that where you originate from, or did you move there? Um, I'm from a small town in the south of England uh, called Brighton. It's about an hour south of London. Um, so I spent the first 25 years of my life there. It's um, it's a very, it's a very strange, hippie, filled town. Lots of artists, musicians, um, eccentric type people come out of Brighton and um, yeah, I spent a lot of my time there, most of my life. And then I moved to Japan when I was 26 in 2016. And I'm now in my fifth year here. I'm still here now. Um, And yeah, a lot longer than I ever initially planned to be here. Was it your intention to reside there or was it, were you just visiting? 
Um, initially, I came out on a working holiday visa, which is you know a scheme that uh, some countries have where you are able to get a year or two, depending on your um, your country of origin. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gives you a free pass to do whatever you like. You can work, you can study, you can travel. Uh, it's 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 literally a, a no limits pass to do whatever you want. Um, but unfortunately, it is only a year long. Um, so I initially came out. Um, on a working holiday visa and the plan was to stay for a year and then go back to England and and I'm still here I've just been visa hopping ever since because it has a tendency to get a hold of you and not let you leave this country well that's awesome it seems like you're enjoying it for sure yeah it's ups and downs isn't it (laughs) (laughs) well um I want to get into kind of like your origin of where you first when you first kind of like got involved in horror because you're a really interesting person in the fact that you're a filmmaker with a lot of films under your belt now at this point but you're also um an amazing collector you've got a really impressive collection i mean anybody from my audience who's listening to this right now guy's collection puts my collection to shame (laughs) it's really uh it's really impressive and you've got all kinds of titles i've never even heard of before and uh (laughs) So I definitely want to pick your brain about a lot of that kind of stuff. But first, I kind of want to know uh, what is some of your first memories of realizing that you had an interest in horror and how did it grow into the genre films that you're interested in too now? Mm, That's that's an awesome question. Um, I love these questions because like every every single person has a different story. Um, so I'm always I'm always interested to hear like everyone's story about where how they got started. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in my case, um, I mean I've I've actually been asked this a few times uh, from various people. Um, a lot of the times, not put quite so pleasantly as you have. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know why are you so fucking weird kind of stuff. But, <laughs> um, I've I've tried tracing it back, and I have come to the conclusion i can't say if this is exactly concrete or not but um when i was six six years old um my grandmother who was a very eccentric lady um she presented me with a book it's a, it's a german a german book called the schruffel peter i think is how you pronounce it um and it's that that book was like the basis for a lot of horror and dark arts that we see now such as like edward scissorhands and whatnot and it was just it's a children's book written a very very long time ago i I should have researched the date i can't remember exactly what it was but it's basically a book for children and it's a little bit like grimm's fairy tales and it teaches you you know it teaches you life lessons essentially don't do this or else this will happen um but in this book for children um the children in the book do all these bad things and suffer the dire consequences. Wow. So you have like, uh, the, you know, don't play with matches and this sweet little young girl plays with matches and she burns to death. <laughs> um, uh, but there was this one, one very particular, um, story. And I remember reading it at my grandma's house. Um, she lived in Spain and it was just the most horrifying thing for me as a, as a six-year-old child. Um, and it was a story of um, don't suck your thumb. And the mother was always telling her child of don't suck your thumb. And the reason is if you do, a man will break into your, your house and cut your thumbs off with his, with his giant pair of scissors. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, reflecting on it now, it was a very inappropriate book to give to a child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but... 
I remember reading this story, and it's, it's beautifully written, and it's, it's beautiful pictures in there. But in this story, the mother goes out after warning her child not to suck his thumb, and, and obviously he does, he sucks his thumb. And I remember turning the page in this book, and this guy with unrealistically long legs, like, barges into his house and with this massive pair of scissors and just cuts this child's thumbs off and he's just there bleeding without thumbs and I remember being so terrified because the idea of a man like a stranger coming into your home with a giant pair of scissors <laughs> and cutting parts off of you it was just terrifying but I remember like reading this book again and again and every time being scared to turn the page but but keep wanting to read it. It was like from there I got this like addiction, I guess you could call it. Like the fear got to me, but it was exciting. So I think like tracing back to my origins, that was probably where I first realized I liked the kind of macabre and the horror, um, that kind of stuff. And then I guess from there, you know, growing up horror movies, I think everyone goes through the, um, the regular, what do you want to call it? You know, trips to the to the video store and and just renting whatever you can find. Um, and when I was about twelve, I think twelve thirteen, it was great because my friend's mom was fucking the owner of a secondhand uh, video shop. <laughs> so we, we would just be able to go and buy all these secondhand tapes. Um, and that was where you know we saw all the regulars, like all the video nasties, like all the classics that people watch. You know, when you're when you're a teenager and you kind of just watch what you can get your hands on really so yeah that was that was i think the big part for me um the book going to the the video rental store um the two films that i, I bought which um really stuck out with me and it's still two of my absolute favorites are blood diner and american psycho and when i saw those when i was a young teenager they had a huge effect on me just great fun and i still love them still love them to bits <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think going back, that was probably a big thing for me. And then from there, you know, I found um, Japanese horror, which is probably a bit more closer to now. Um, my friend's, my friend's older brother. Uh, this is still going back to when we were young teenagers. He bought a battle royale when uh, when it came out in England in I think 2000 or 2001 maybe. At which time I would have been like what 20 maybe no not 20 bloody old 10 <laughs> 10 10 12 maybe um and that was probably i think the first time i saw like a, a, a very blood heavy japanese horror which then sparked the japanese horror interest from there takashi Miike films from there the guinea pig films um and yeah just watching whatever i could get my hands on really yeah just snows snowballs from there you know it does um and then from there you know i had the internet which was a godsend um so you know i from then i was going onto like the imdb forums which were awesome i was doing like dvdr trades with some people who i don't know and from there i, I managed to get like muzani and some of the um, other daisuke yamanouchi films and like some yoga bukarite films and i got shram there so yeah, just kind of like dealing with the community um, through any way possible. Um, I mean, from then back then we didn't have like Facebook groups, which are an absolute godsend now. You know, like you log into Facebook every day and you're put into another 
extreme gore collectors group. Um, so it's great. Everything is served now on like a, on a silver plate and you just, it comes to your door, so to speak. Um, but back then that, that wasn't the case. And obviously the generation before mine had it a lot harder than I did. So, um, but yeah, sorry, I'm just rambling on. <laughs> I would just essentially watch whatever I could get my hands on <laughs> and kept searching for the next like big or gross or gory thing. Um, and so from there, when did it, when did it grow from just being something that you're interested in to you picking up a camera and trying to make your own films? So I, um, so I had accumulated all these fucked up films, um, all these horror gore films, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I would, you know, I'd often hold, um, and showing parties in my house, you know, invite my friends over, watch some fucked up films. Um, but there was never really anyone around me that really was interested in that kind of stuff. I mean, they were watching and be like, yo, that's fucked up. This is cool. Let's, you know, let's do something else now. Uh, there was no one who I could really have long back and forths with or like could um, talk to like within my immediate community about this kind of stuff, uh, which is why I started my, um, my YouTube channel. I think, I don't know. Oh Christ! I don't know. Ten years, it was more ago now. Um, which is, you know, I'm I'm since very inactive on it. But at one point, I was quite active reviewing all these kind of fucked up films, and um, and it was just one of those things, you know. You watch films, you you live and breathe films, you review films, and at some point, I had gained some sort of an audience. Um, and I thought, you know, if, if I were ever to want to make a film, because, you know, as a, someone who literally watches movies all day, every day, uh, back then, <laughs> lives and breathes cinema, you kind of just think like, you know, it'd be cool if I could make my own film. And because I'd kind of developed some sort of a community through that YouTube channel, where if I were to make something, there would be someone or like a group of people who would actually watch it. Um, with that in mind, I just thought, okay, I'll... I'll just give it a go and try to make something. Um, that was it, really. <laughs> and so in 2013, uh, mm. you you released The Rope Maiden, and I was mm. wondering uh, where did the concept for that film come from? What were your inspirations, and what was the production process like on that? <laughs> so the, um, the Rope Maiden... So yeah, going back... So with the... With my YouTube channel, Sculpting Fragments, um, I was kind of just known as the guy who reviewed all those fucked up weird films, especially out of Japan. Um, so with, you know, all my subscribers having an interest in those kinds of films, I thought if I was going to make something, I would have to make something that would you know, would, would cater to, to the subscribers because in theory, they were the only people who were ever going to watch this film. They were the, the sole audience I had. So with that in mind, I was like, it needs to be fucked up and it, 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 should, it would be great if it had some kind of like snuff element um, because those are all the films I was reviewing. But, you know, the snuff film has been done. Like there was already Nicodarama, there was already Flowers and Flesh and Blood, and there's no way I'm ever going to make a film as good as that or as good as those are. So I had to think about an alternative angle that still had that kind of snuff element. And that angle was like the, the comedy factor or the kind of the, the how to 
video approach because that was essentially what I was doing with my YouTube channel. I was sitting and talking to a camera. And so my audience were used to that kind of setting from me. So I just became a characterized version of myself and made this kind of fake snuff how-to comedy. Um, so it was primarily made like, well, solely for the subscribers of my old YouTube channel. And in terms of inspiration, yeah, obviously there there's all the, the, the obvious ones like the guinea pig series and nikodarma but the the biggest film that i took inspiration one inspiration from was a german um film called the the, the forklift driver klaus i believe it is and and that is another like it's a safety at work like pseudo documentary where everything goes wrong and everyone dies and it was just brilliant. It was that perfect level of like uh, comedy and gore. And that had a huge effect on me when I first saw that. And that was kind of what, like, yeah, probably pushed me into that direction of not just doing a straight up gore film or something like that. It had that nice balance, which I definitely took some sort of inspiration from. Yeah, those, I think I we could be speaking about different videos, but there's like a series of, safety training videos called high impact safety training and they're like mm. trainings for different things like there's forklift training there's like using heavy machinery and they always like <clears throat> have this really cheesy um like low budget gore effects like people getting stabbed by the by the forklift or things falling <laughs> and crushing people and they've awesome yeah they've like gotten a cult status behind them and they still use them in training videos for like facilities and stuff but oh brilliant it's, yeah i don't know if it's the same thing but that's what it kind of reminds me of i'm not sure I'd, I'd only ever seen the forklift driver klaus like the forklift driver training video um i wasn't aware there are others but i will definitely have to uh give those a search if there are i definitely need to see them have you seen um the what is it called ensuring your place in hell that sounds familiar um i've heard the name somewhere but i can't recall what it is it's kind of like a, a compilation of videos. So there's there's Ensuring Your Place in Hell. And the f first one has like a big cult following. And it's got mm. uh, different videos that are like believed to be genuine found footage videos. So one of the most famous videos in the se in, in Ensuring Your Place in Hell has a video called Grave Robbing for Morons. And it's got these <sighs> guys. Yes. Uh, you know you know that one? Oh, no, but carry on, carry on. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh yeah, so and it's it's an actual home video of these like kids in a in a bed in a dirty bedroom like giving a tutorial on how to gra rob graves and it seems very authentic. It seems real. And they're holding like real human skulls and this whole thing. And so this is like a long-winded way of me saying that I I made the second Ensuring Your Place in Hell DVD and I put one of those movies on there, the the training oh, videos. <laughs> so if you're looking for them, they're available on the second ensuring oh, your place in hell. But brilliant. no one knows who made the first one of ensuring your place in hell and it's got like a big cult following, so it's definitely worth checking out for sure. I will definitely do that. Yeah, I, I literally just stumbled across that crazy great grave robbing for idiots or whatever it's called. Um just on Facebook like a week ago or something. Um but I've yet to watch it, so I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, that's like one of my most prized possessions in terms of just like weird media that exists out there it's pretty cool i think you'd get a kick out of it 
Sounds um, like it, yeah. <laughs> well, continuing with the Rope Maiden, uh, yeah. later on you'd come out with kind of like a recut of the Rope Maiden called the Human Chandelier. And I was wondering mm. what was your inspiration uh, to kind of dive back into that film and recut it differently and, and re-release it the way that you did? Um, so when I, when I first made uh, the Rope Maiden, I mean... <sighs> I, I was never really happy with the end result. I think just because the post-production process was such a pain in the ass. And that, that was purely because I had no idea what I was doing. I had never picked up a camera in my life before. It was just like, well, let's, you know, shoot this this film, which, you know, sounds like it might be fun. And I, I did bite off a little more than I could chew, um, I guess you could say, because it was literally... Um, sorry, I, I forgot to mention the um, production process that you asked me about, but um, it was literally just me and Tomo, um, the girl in there. For the most part, just the two of us. Like, I would tie her up. Um, she was kind of seemingly suspended, um, and I would kind of work the camera, then come back around doing my lines kind of thing. But it was all just very haphazardly made and w without any knowledge of how to make a film, you know. And the post-production process was also... Uh, like that I, I didn't know how to edit um, which is funny because I would later on you know become an editor in, as a job but uh, <laughs> but um, yeah and with like the green screen and all that stuff and the subtitles and the dubbing I just kind of gave myself a mountain of things to do without any knowledge of how to do them properly so the post-production process was a massive pain in the ass and I was never really really happy with the outcome um, so I kind of just like put it aside for a long time. I, I I never really did much of anything with it besides that just initial like DVD R run, you know, that I did in 2013. Um, and and then like I don't know, it just kept coming up on Facebook, and people kept asking me where they can buy copies, and and I started to hear people you know talk about it very fondly and talk about you know it's their favorite short film and. And and all these like really lovely comments about it, and and that kind of, as well as the fact that there was a demand for it, just kind of made me want to just try to see it in a different light. Um, but not not wanting to change the the original cut. I mean, that is what it is, and I'll, I'll never change what that was. But I I kind of was thinking I should probably re-release this um, because. I literally only released it on, it was a white blank DVD-R with, with some cool artwork that my friend did. Um, but it had never, it had never had a proper DVD release. Um, so with the demand and, and the comments and that new lights that I was, I was trying to adopt for it, um, I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll, I'll re-release it. I'll give it a proper release and the one that it deserves. And at that time, I just um, so happened to be back in England and I'd found all the, um, the mini DV tapes that I had shot it on. And I, I didn't know where they had gone. I thought I'd lost them for good. Um, and I found them and I just re-digitized them. And I thought, you know, it might just be fun as like an extra bonus to like add a new cut without all like the goofy Japanese shit, like as if it's a, an actual snuff film, like a, a pseudo snuff film, as opposed to the wacky, crazy rope maiden with the stupid music and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but it was more just um, like it might be cool to see it as a different movie, like the same footage, different atmosphere, as well as something to like beef up the extras on the DVD. Um, 
I think was 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 the reason behind it. I never was planning to to change the original cut, but just add a little something extra just for fun. Yeah, it was I think it's really interesting that you you have kind of these two different cuts of the film. I sat down and I watched The Rope Maiden and then I watched The Human Chandelier and the quality of the footage is so significantly different i actually thought you like reshot the movie i thought i didn't i, I right. didn't think it was a recut i thought you literally went back and were like remaking it and then i was like wait these scenes look really familiar and then i was like oh it's a recut and i just i was really it was a really interesting kind of like refreshing take of the same footage i thought that was pretty interesting oh thank you very much yeah yeah uh, it's it funny yeah it was actually surprising for me as well seeing like the original footage i thought wow can mini dv shoot this nicely because <laughs> <laughs> i i dubbed it to hell and back like to be it's a vhs and then we put it back into the edit to do the green screen and then i redubbed it to vhs and then back into the edit like i just wanted that that really dirty grimy look for the first initial cut um yeah. But yeah, so 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 looking at the uh, the actual original footage, I was like, oh, this camera is not too bad actually. <laughs> and with that re-release of the Rope Maiden, you had cover art from uh, Martin Trafford, who is become a really respected artist within within the underground, and he's done work for um, films like Necromantic and things like that. And I was wondering how you got kind of involved with him and and had him do the art for your re-release. Mm. Uh, yeah, Martin is just—he's—he's he's awesome. He's—he's he's such a key player in in the underground horror scene. I feel like so many people owe him like just so much debt for for helping like promote their movies and providing artwork and comic books and posters and t-shirt designs. Like he's such a staple of this community. Um, It's—he's he's a fantastic guy to have around. Um, I think the the first time that I had any sort of contact with him, I believe, was when um, uh, Sam Hell, under pseudonym Sam, um, who does the Baroque House uh, stuff, he was doing uh, Lost Witch, I believe it was. It was a, a, a micro uh, VHS label, and he released the Rope Maiden in, in like two different varieties. And he asked, uh, he asked Martin to do some artwork for one of the variants. And, and it was a really cool piece. I really liked the artwork that he did for it. And it was, it was a shame. It was never really seen by that many people just because I think there were only like 25 units or something. I mean, this is going back like a long time. So forgive me if I'm getting some of the details wrong. But, um, but yeah, he provided this fantastic artwork. And, and I believe... Oh no, sorry, it's not a variation on that. Then there was there was a failed, I say failed, there was another DVD release of the Rome Maiden, um, which Joey Caps put out, who um uh, he's just another guy from the community and he he went to release the Rome Maiden and then he kind of just didn't. <laughs> <laughs> or he he closed his company or he just decided to give up and no no one got any copies essentially besides a, a small handful of people and so so yeah sorry the uh, the artwork that um martin did for the lost witch release and then the joey caps release are actually different so forgive me for that rambling i just did 
But the uh, the one that he did for the Joey Caps release ended up pretty much not being used, and it was such great artwork. So he essentially just did a, a redrawing of it for this new release that I had. So is the is the artwork pretty similar to the original one that he did? Yes. Um, I can't remember exactly what he changed, but he tweaked it a little bit. Um, but it is it's very, very similar. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't even I didn't know all of these different releases of the Rope Maiden. I have I only have the the white uh, DVDR that you originally put out that you were talking about that your friend did, and then I have the oh. re-release. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, um, yeah. The the Joey Caps release. I mean, he just dropped off the map and then basically fucked a bunch of people over, including including Martin and myself. So. It was a shame to kind of have that all that awesome artwork, and there were other artists like contributors as well who never got their copies. So it was um, it was a very shitty turn of events, shitty outcome. And so with that in mind as well, I thought you know it'd be cool if I could just release it myself properly with all this awesome artwork that's floating around. Um, so yeah, again, called in on on old Martin, and he did some fantastic stuff for me as always. That's awesome. Um, so in 2017 you released mm. uh your second film difficulty breathing which to me is a significant shift in kind of the tone of um of the rope maiden uh difficulty breathing is a lot more serious it's much more of um a horror film um and uh i was wondering uh what inspired you to make that film and kind of go in that direction with it um yeah, so I, I moved to Japan in 2016, and uh, like I mentioned before, I'd only I was only planning on being here for a year, and I just thought, wouldn't it be cool if I made a film whilst I was out here? <laughs> and that was kind of that was it. I just wanted to make something after a long hiatus, um, and from I mean, from the time I made the road made, and obviously tastes shift, and you kind of come into like you get into new different types of films, and I was very much into my noisy psychological horror um and still very much am which i think is the influence of the the japanese cyberpunk movement as opposed to the the pseudo snuff stuff which is more familiar to the road maiden um and i just wanted to make like one of these weird psychological noisy horror films and i love single set movies i absolutely love them they're some of my favorite films are all single set jobs and I thought it would be great if I could do a single set horror film with like with that kind of psychological horror noisy take. And just in the circumstances that I was in, I mean, I was in a new country. I didn't really have many friends. I could barely speak the language, didn't have any money. Uh, I couldn't write a script because, you know, uh, because again, from my own lack of uh, knowledge of the language, um and so as well as it being the film i really wanted to make it was also the the only film that i could physically make at that point in my life so that was kind of the how, how that came around where did the the concept for the narrative come from um did you just develop that idea on your own or did, or did you have help from other people 
No, I just developed it on my own. Um, so the place that we filmed it in, that, that was my apartment. <laughs> it was literally a, a nothing, nothing, bare bones, blank walls. I, I did have more stuff in there, but I shifted it all out just for filming. But um, I was living in this uh, very, very small rundown building <laughs> in the slums of Japan, essentially. Um, and... There is, uh, this is a little bit long-winded, but I'll try to keep it, keep it short. There is a, uh, a thing in Japan. It, it's essentially the accident property thing. It's called the Jikobuken thing. And if the property has had a murder or a suicide or someone has died of unnatural causes or has not been found for a very long time, the property is labeled as one of these accident properties. And the landlord or the real estate agent has to declare that to the next tenant and the rent becomes significantly cheaper. So I was living in one of those. Wow. Um, I I wasn't uh, quite sure of the, um, the causes of like what actually happened that wasn't declared to me. Um, but I was living in one of these um, accident properties and like in the film where there's that futon in the corner of the room, like that was where I would sleep. And in the middle of the room is just that frosted glass sliding door. I mean, this, this, this could all very much be explained uh, with science and whatnot, but I would basically see things moving on the other side of the screen from time to time. And I would be in bed and I would kind of see things out the corner of my eye, like movement and like lights moving and shadows moving. And that was where the idea of that weird kind of like shadow monster came. Mm-hmm. And there were other things that like scratching on the walls a lot of the time, um, which could very well have been mice, who knows. But, uh, but there was just lots of weird stuff from that apartment. The, the, the whole, the, the actual structure itself was built illegally. <laughs> like if there was so many fire hazards, there were two different apartments that were like docked together the ceiling down the stairs would get like so low that you ha- you would have to like crawl to get out of the building. It was a really fucked up place. Uh, so just taking a lot of influence from the place I was actually living in and what I experienced whilst living there, that definitely helped me write the uh, the horror element of difficulty breathing. Wow, that's really that's really fascinating. I'm curious about this them notifying you that that some kind of accident happened. I know that they didn't go into detail about the specifics, but do they tell, do they tell you like it was a suicide or a murder or an accident or do they just say something happened here? They said something happened here. It was, it was, uh, it was labeled as an accident property, hence the, uh, the low rent, but, um, but without going, yeah, without going into details or declaring <laughs> exactly what happened. Wow. Um, but another really interesting thing about the, uh, that part of Japanese culture is there is uh, now people who seek out these uh, these apartments to live in under the like for cheap, and also there is actually you can earn money from it. So landlords will pay you to live in their apartment um, for cheap, because then after the first person after the incident has moved out, they don't have to declare it to the next tenant, so they can up the rent again. So you can actually earn money in Japan by living in like suicide properties. It's pretty <laughs> fucked up. 
That is fascinating. That's really yeah. interesting. Um, well, that's cool that you kind of turned that experience into something cathartic and something tangible. And I feel like it really shows in the film because I feel like that film is very haunting and claustrophobic. And um, I've I've watched it several times now, and every single time it's still there's different parts of it that make me feel uneasy. It's one of those movies where if you're watching it alone in the dark, you're like, you feel like there's something behind you. Um, oh, that's very nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I really like the film a lot. And uh, it was actually the first of your work that I ever saw. I was really impressed by it. Um, oh, thank you very much. And I, and like you, I really admire work where you can kind of flush out a, a, a narrative in just one location. And, uh, mm. so I kind of, I kind of pick up little things from it every time I watch, watch it. I think you did a really good job. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it's, it's, it's very bizarre to me because, um, like I said, it was kind of just this thing and I was, oh, it'd be nice to make a film in Japan. And it's since, you know, people often say very, complimentative things to me about that film and they say you know it gave them anxiety attacks and stuff which is always lovely to hear <laughs> <laughs> but it was um it was one of the, it was so very like i made it so half-assed you know like there was no script i just did some very crude crude drawings which are also available in, in the dvd special feature and there was nothing really planned i just had an idea of what kind of film i wanted to shoot just like a base idea for certain scenes. Um, so the fact that like people talk about it and it gets some sort of like, I don't know, some sort of recognition or uh, like high rating or, you know, people are nice enough to review it, you know, and say like it gave them a panic attack or it made them want to go outside or something or like that's, that's just really, really lovely to hear. Um, makes me kind of wish I actually tried a little harder making it. The film is very minimalist, but it does have mm. some practical effects. Um, I was wondering uh, who made the fetus that's in the film. Was that something you made, or did you uh, outsource it from someone? That's a very good question, actually. <laughs> um, it's a funny story. Um, because that, that fetus thing, um, I got it from an anti-abortion clinic. <laughs> So apparently that's the um the the actual size of a 3 month old fetus and uh -huh. they would give out these little fetus dolls outside abortion clinics um in order to try and stop pregnant women from from aborting their their children. Wow. So I did feel somewhat uh guilty for using that type of thing in this way uh but i was like well it's it's it's, it's perfect realistic size and it's this little three month old fetus baby so <laughs> yeah i just i just acquired a few of these um and painted it a little bit added some blood and stuff and it then it looked good to, good to go that's interesting that's cool i've i've heard about those i mean yeah that's that's interesting i'd love to get my hands on one of those I have I collect like oddities and rarities and stuff, and I think that would just be kind of a cool thing to have on the shelf. 
kind of fucked up. But... Fucked up. Yeah, it's like imagine like <laughs> uh, like poor lady like having to like abort her baby and you got some cunt coming up to you and be like, you know, this is your child, have a rubber little kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fuck out has nothing to do with you. The fact that they're like trying to give those out to dispersed people. I mean, I'm I'm very much open to you know free rights. You people need to do what they need to do, then so be it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's how that's where the baby came from. Um, in addition to releasing Difficulty Breathing, you also released a DVD called Difficulty Breathing Live, which is kind of um, a, a live art performance uh, surrounding mm. the film. And I was wondering if you sure. could kind of elaborate on that project and, and where that came from. Um, the idea of it came from... I... I had since oh god so the, the director shows in Fukui, who did rubber's lover and pinocchio and, and all those fantastic movies um he's been very active in basically doing live performances of his movies so he'll get like a band or a noise band or a, a, a performance artist and he will um what's that vj like visual dj mm-hmm his uh his own films and it kind of like makes you see them in a new light he'll mix two things together and there'll be like some crazy performance it might be like budol dancing the traditional dance from japan or it might just be some like crazy woman screaming and some guy playing the drums like it's all very interactive and very visually intense and he's been doing loads of these um live performances of his old movies but with collabor collaborations between other artists and musicians and i think he did them under a series called cinema blast um for a few years and i went down to tokyo and i saw a few of these and it was just, it was just so cool uh, it's these films i've seen them like a dozen times and to see them like in a new light it's like when you see your favorite film and you never get bored of it but you know all the parts mm-hmm. but then to see it film made like what 20 something years ago but it's new and it's fresh and it's it's different and it's it's more intense like pinocchio 964 is tense as fuck it's it's intense like you need you need to like take a walk around the park after you watch it but seeing that like with some sort of visual performance in front of the screen and live noise with this like explosive sound system it makes it so much more intense and I, I'd seen a few of these um, live shows that he'd been doing. And I thought, well, maybe I could give that a go um, with difficulty breathing because it's, it's obviously, it already has a noise soundtrack and there is no dialogue in there whatsoever. So I thought, how could I, you know, change, go, go from the DVD version into a live version? So I just, you know, messed around with a few different like synthesizers and springboards and effect pedals and and just did a few like shows in Japan um, of that essentially. Just that final like I think twenty minutes of the film where it gets like intense and noisy. Um, so I would basically screen that last part of the movie and do all the sound live as as a, some sort of like you know audio visual performance and occasionally i would have like my friends come and help me out uh, like in that night of a thousand eyes uh dvd my friend botan who's a um 
uh, SN, uh, dominatrix. Uh, she does bondage and, and all this and that. We, we just thought, you know, why don't we just do some sort of performance together? She, uh, she called on one of her model friends and we just did, yeah, this three way collaborative event of visual and noise and body painting. And it was a really nice little, little night that we did together. And there just happened to be a bunch of people as a sold out, um, sold out house. I think mainly because there was a, um, another performance later on. I forgot the name of the actress. Uh, she's a famous porn actress and she was also there doing a, a performance. But anyway, loads of people came and I managed to get loads of footage from different cameras. Um, and yeah, just edited them all together and I thought that'd be cool to put out as a, as a, like a little extra just for, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's an awesome DVD. Wonder. It was really interesting to look at. Uh, I didn't know it was just, I thought it was like a one night thing, but that's cool that you've done it multiple times. How, how many times have you done this performance? Would you say? Um, uh, not so many, about half a dozen, I reckon. Um, yeah, and it's it's nice because it changes every time. Even though I have like a routine, so to speak, because um, I'm essentially just following the visuals. Like, there's not really any room for um, improvisation because you have to keep watching the screen because you know the next scene is soon coming. But um, but yeah, it's nice because it just keeps the film fresh, you know. And I've been talking with shows in Fukui as well. Obviously, now we're in the pandemic, so it's not a not an option. But at some point, we were thinking to get together, do like a show in Tokyo and a show in Osaka, and both like work on this audio visual um, event, which would be really cool if it ever comes to fruition. That would be awesome. That would be super cool. Mm. I can only imagine what his performance is like with. Pinocchio because that movie is crazy and the idea of having like trying to like make it even bigger with a live performance that sounds insane <laughs> sounds like a, a yeah. blast though sounds like a blast yeah yeah it was uh, very cool I think whenever I would go down to Tokyo I would schedule it in for when he's doing something and just that would be one of my nights filled right there great <laughs> stuff so uh following uh difficulty breathing in 2018 and 2019 you'd come out with two short films centered around vending machines and i'm probably going to butcher these names right now but one's called coffee unko and the other one's called jahanko um and i was wondering what you could tell us about both of these projects they're very unique and interesting and (laughs) kind of off the wall (laughs) i think um yeah the uh the important thing to take away from this is the um, I don't have any like any sort of recurring themes in my films. I'm not like a, a genre filmmaker who like has like a pattern or something. I just make whatever kind of random shit that I feel like I want to make. So that's why the, the, there's always massive differences in all of my work. Um, so with uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I I decided to make some vending machine based films and the they came around because actually well for two reasons uh, the first one i did unkohi that was um that was that the, the shit coffee one mm-hmm. uh, so in japanese the word unko is shit and then coffee is coffee so i just dropped those two words together and made unkohi 
and that came around because do you do you know the uh, manga artist Shintaro Kago? Um, I'm I'm pretty bad with names, but if you told me his work, I might I might be familiar with their work. He does a lot of like it's very like manga like pop art, but it's very grotesque, and there's always like the body, especially female body, is always distorted, like train tracks coming out their heads and stuff. It's yeah. very poppy. Yeah, I think I've seen that before. Mm. So every year in Japan, he does a shit film festival. Um, so he accumulates work or films, animations from, from all over the world, I guess. And it's just an all night long film fest, but the all the films are, are themed upon shit. And that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very dumb. It's really dumb, <laughs> but it's good fun. It's a nice enough way to spend a day. Um, and I went to one in 2016, quite soon after arriving in Japan, and that was actually where I met Han, who was the the entity in difficulty breathing. And and I went to like two every year they do them, so I went to a couple. Um, and then I just thought me and my my coworker. Um, who was also very strange. Um, we just thought, you know, why don't we try and make one of these shit films? Um, and that was it. We just like hashed out an idea over a drink. Um, and, and then, yeah, that was it really. So that was basically how we, why we decided to make that film. Um, just to just like, it would be cool to take part in this Japanese film festival about shit by this really cool artist. Uh, so that was how that came around. And then at the same time, difficulty breathing took me far longer than I was expecting. Like the sound design took forever to get done. Um, so because of that, I just wanted to do like short little projects, which is why I did like very just short films after difficulty breathing. And they were all things which like I both filmed and edited within a single day and didn't really, didn't really spend too much time on, to be honest. Um, well, the one thing that stuck out to me with the, the shit coffee, uh, short is, I mean, I, I can't read what the soda can says or the coffee can says, but it, but I do see a symbol of poop on there. Was that custom made for the film or is that actually just something that you could go purchase from a vending machine? Oh, well, we, we got the, the, the can itself is a, is boss coffee. It's, it's a, just a. You can get it from any vending machine, and then we got like a couple of um, like paint pens and just painted on top of the can. Oh, okay, that's so, cool. So it was very much a hack job. <laughs> and yeah, the the can itself just says Unkohi, so it's the 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 brand name of the uh, the drink as well as the title of the film. <laughs> and then, um, what can you tell us about the other the short the other short, uh, Jihanko? Uh, Jihanko, yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Jihanko as well. Um, I I just I, I love Japanese vending machines. It's just so fun. There's so many weird variants of them, and it's such a um, alien culture to me. Because in England you don't get vending machines because everyone just trashes them and steals all the shit from the inside. Mm-hmm. So um, so that was one of the big things that like had quite quite a big like. Um, effect on me when I moved to Japan there's just so many vending machines and there's a vending machine for everything and so I became slightly obsessed with these vending machines and just started taking pictures of them and filming them and stuff and and I realized I had a slight 
even though not in a in a sexual way, but a, a fascination, obsession um, for these for vending machines. And I thought, oh, would it be cool to do like a fetish movie about about vending machines? And that was just how that came around, really. Um, just a stupid vending machine. It's like a love <laughs> film. It's, it's, I think it's the only love film I'll ever do, if you want to call it that. Um, and yeah, it's again another one day project. Not something I really. Uh, wanted to spend too much time and effort on, uh, but has also been like the film which has been easiest for me to submit to different film festivals um, out in Japan, just because it's it's I think it's more accessible for Japanese folk than like my horror films. So whenever they watch it, you know they laugh and they enjoy it. Whereas if I were to go to a film festival and play difficulty breathing, they all kind of just yeah they leave <laughs> what was the filming process like for that i mean were there people walking by watching this guy get erotic with a vending machine and giving you guys weird looks or were you able yes. to kind of pull it off <laughs> the, the uh the, the the old man who like comes comes along halfway through the um through the film like that was just an actual guy who came to use the vending machine <laughs> so yeah i mean it was like on, on a on a busy street um so yeah, people were walking around, people were thinking, what the fuck is this guy doing to this vending machine? Um, yeah. So that was it. We just went and found a vending machine and thought, well, this is good enough. Let's use this one. There was no no sort of pre-production or anything, any sort of planning. Just go out, find a vending machine, start filming. Speaking about vending machines, this is, this is just kind of a, a side question. Um, there's mm. kind of a urban legend that in japan you can uh, get buy panties out of a vending machine is that is that true do you know that's of? very true <laughs> well it's <that is> very <laughs> true that's cool i'm glad that it's i'm glad it's a real thing yep um <laughs> well i was actually filming a film very recently um and the the main actress actually went and bought some vending machine panties just for fun <laughs> <laughs> But uh, she was like, I want... it, it wasn't actually a, a panty vending machine, but it was like an erotic vending machine. And it was like, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. She got some women's pants. Is that, so for panties vending machines, is it all, is the market for that specifically for erotic purposes? Or is it like for women like, oh, you forgot your panties, go to the vending machine? <laughs> they, they are purely for erotic purposes. Yeah. So I think like back in I don't know the the oh God I don't know I mean the nineties or probably the nineties like that was a big thing like buying schoolgirls pants um, from vending machines it was a big thing in Japan. But since then I mean it has as well as it becoming a little bit of a cliche it's just I mean it's so easily um, like forged and botched so you just get a bunch of bunch of pants stick them in a little like capsule and be like, oh, yeah, these are used girls' panties, you know, buy them for like 10 bucks or something. And obviously they're not. They're either, they're either fresh off the store or someone's like smeared some like glue to look like cum in them or something. So it's like, it's essentially some sort of, it's panty fraud, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I figure, that there's probably someone just like spraying some kind of scented stuff on them or, or whatever. Sure. Yeah, and I think uh, there was a time in Japan where it was quite big. 
and you do you do still find like panty machines here and there but there are yeah less than less than before well that's 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 kind of interesting <laughs> um so going back to your films you also currently have an unreleased project called 30 and i was wondering uh what's your plans for this project are you planning on putting it out um and what can you tell us about it Again, it was another film which I didn't really spend too much time or effort on. <laughs> and again, that was for Shintaro Kago's Shit Film Festival. Um, just because, um, you know, there are these regular film festivals on, and I thought, you know, it's just fun to take part in them. But it's so I, I, made, I made these films purely for that festival. Um, and it wasn't anything which I would be like, you know, yeah, I'm going to put on a DVD and release and sign and put that much effort into releasing it because it's, it was literally just a, another one day project. Um, but, uh, so that, that was the reason I made it just for another shit film festival. And one of the reasons I chose not to, I, I've chosen not to do anything with it as of yet is because I've already, I have released that Unkohi film. And I don't want to release another shit-based film because I don't want to become that shit film guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but it was good fun. It's basically um, it's the story of a woman who can't give birth. Um, and so she does. She ends up doing a massive shit one day and raises this giant shit as her baby. And um, and I got Ulan from Difficulty Breathing to to do that role again for me. And so we kind of just like mimicked and spoofed some of the difficulty breathing scenes. That's but with a, that but with a giant awesome. shit instead of a <laughs> dead baby. <laughs> that sounds really cool. I definitely would want to see that if you ever uh, if you I, ever put it out. <laughs> maybe I, I I might do something with it, but I think at least I need to like put out some actual horror films for a little while. Or else I will just be that shit film guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, outside of filmmaking, you're also a serious film collector. And mm. I already said this, but you've got one of the most impressive collections I've ever seen. And I was wondering uh, what got you into collecting and what are your some of your favorite genres to collect? Um, oh, what got me into collecting? I have no idea. I think it was just um, going back to to my friend who whose mom was getting fucked by the VHS guy. Um, <laughs> we would just you know go and get tapes from this guy's shop, and you know at that time you you know you couldn't be picky. You had to watch whatever horror film you get your hands on, and I have no problem with watching the same film over and over again. If there's a film I like, I'll watch it to hell and back. And so they just accumulate, you know. Mm -hmm. um, that was probably where it started, just because you know I'm not going to throw this film away because I'm going to I'm going to watch it again. Like, and then before you know it, you've got like a, a collection. Um, but I think when I really started collecting um, was. Uh, 12 years ago or something just like probably just before i started youtube um w w did, you, did you ever see the mizpol channel i don't think so so there was this guy called mizpol 
Um, and he was like the collector. He had everything. And it wasn't like fucked up stuff. He had a lot of horror, uh, but he had like all the special editions and the numbered stuff and the like the statue stuff and the, the foreign stuff from overseas. And, and he was like the first guy to introduce like those hard boxes from Germany to like the rest of the world. And he was like this very mysterious, obviously very well off financially collector. And I remember seeing his YouTube channel and just thinking, God, who the fuck is this guy? And why is his collection so damn good? And, and that was actually the reason why I also started my YouTube, uh, which is a side note, uh, just because I had so, I also had a lot of unique stuff that a lot of people didn't have or was also very sought after. Um, and so, yeah, I just started collecting like all these weird, crazy films, um, especially films that had not made their way onto DVD was like the point for me. Um, so yeah just start accumulating collecting <laughs> rare stuff i think in terms of like <laughs> so what, what was the last part of the question you asked me i completely forgot uh what are some genres or or niche films that you like favor in terms of collecting right right sorry um i always tend to spiral off onto things <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think for, for a long time, I was like, I've got to get all the guinea pig films, you know, just like on, on the, the, on the Japanese VHS tapes, just because they're, historically, they're so important and they just look so fucking cool and they're great films. Um, so I was like, I need to get all the guinea pig tapes. I, I've managed to get all of them, including the, the Lucky Sky Diamond. Um, but you kind of just like go through the, the different things like what do i need to get next and then you complete that collection you're like fuck i've done that now i need to find something else to collect and the thing which has been like my raging obsession for the last decade or so is the japanese cyberpunk stuff like because i adore that genre yeah those are i mean i'm sure that there's a lot of it more available where you are than over here i think we in the U.S. And, and in parts of Europe, we just get kind of what trinkles overseas to us. But I'm sure mm. that you get exposed to a whole bunch of things that we haven't seen before, which is part of the reason why I kind of want to dive into that with you, because um, it's just I know that there's a huge need within the extreme like underground collecting community. There's a huge interest in fucked up Japanese stuff, um, mm. but the prices are so high, like with you collecting the guinea pig films and, and like lucky sky diamond i mean getting an original vhs of that is uh pretty pricey um and what do those prices look like over there when you when you're collecting them are they are they in the hundreds still or is it less than that that's a really good question actually so um i mean i bought i mean i still have the tape i bought mermaid in a manhole uh fuck 15 years ago and i bought it on ebay in england and at that point, tape collecting hadn't quite had its revival yet. So everything was like disgustingly cheap. And I bought it for like 10 pounds, which is like 15 bucks American. Mm -hmm. And even then I was just like, I mean, you know, I mean, I have the DVD, but like, it'd be cool to have the tape as well kind of thing. And I bought it just for whatever. And, um, but since then, I mean, I actually, I, I looked on the, the, the various auction sites today and they are fucking
fucking expensive now, man. Yeah. Like, I think everyone, regardless of if you're in England or America or Japan, like, all of those tapes, they've all hit their premium, and they are in their, like, middle, double, like, triple digits. It's like, you know, three, four hundred bucks for one of them, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what I've seen, especially, like, with a... A lot of the shockumentary stuff, like a, a, a single tape from the Death File series is fucking hundreds of dollars. They go for a lot, yeah. yeah. Which is which is crazy. Like, I, I, I managed, I probably managed to get the entire collection of those guinea pig tapes for maybe, I don't know, a hundred bucks or something. Maybe, maybe less, actually. Uh, but now you can, you're lucky if you can buy one of them for that. So I think they, they've all just hit their, their premium and I think with everyone trying to get their hands on them, they're just they're just going to keep increasing in prices. Yeah, yeah. I think Again, I think yeah. Sorry, Carol. Uh, I just think markets like that fluctuate. I think it's going to peak and then it'll maybe go down. Uh, who knows? I I hope so. Um, mm. I just feel Definitely. I feel like as a collector, especially for films like uh like lucky sky diamond for example um i talk about this a lot on my on my channel or on this uh podcast actually because people ask me about films in dead format and uh lucky sky diamonds one of those films and it just sucks that that like an original copy of those kind of films are so expensive because Mm. they i think they run the risk of getting lost you know sure i mean there's always some sort of like ties up with like rights holders and stuff which makes it very difficult to re-release them so i'm sure i'm sure there is a dozen companies trying to release it for whatever reason like but yeah the the sad reality is unfortunately it's never had a release outside of that like vhs tape you know decades ago um and it would be lovely if prices were to come down but even like buying stuff like inside japan is very expensive and unless you just manage to find like a secondhand store, which, you know, I, I do from time to time, um, you can still pick up things for like a couple of bucks. Um, but online prices, whether you're in Japan or outside of Japan, they're all very high. Um, kind of another question I have is, so uh, extreme Japanese fetish films have gotten really, really popular, especially mm. things centered around like, vomit or scat and things like that and i was wondering how accessible are those kind of films like if you went is are there like porn shops or dvd shops that you can go into and those are pretty easy to get or are they more more things that you have to get online it's one of the uh the the big uh, shockers for me when i'm when i actually first not not moved to japan but came to japan um as a on a holiday in oh fuck when was it 2011 um, I see all these signs on the streets, like DVDs, VHS, and you're like, yeah, great, I'm going to see what horror films I can find. So basically, a DVD shop in Japan equals a porn shop. Okay. So you go down the street, big sign, DVDs, you're like, fuck yeah, let's see what we got, find Ring, find The Grudge, might get a guinea pig, who knows. And it is like a seven-story porn shop. <laughs> Like you don't get that many shops like we have um, in England that actually just sell DVDs. Like it's it's all porn. Wow. There's a massive like the the ratio to the actual actual movies 
to porn films is insane. I actually struggle to find movies <laughs> here. <laughs> um, so yeah, then they cater for everything, like the weirdest shit. So you can very, very easily walk into any shop. You, you're in the, the city center, you're on the high street, and you're like, fuck, I fancy some, some shit or vomit. Or I don't know, pick your fetish because they have it. It's crazy. It's very easily accessible. Wow. Well, but it's very expensive. That's that's the thing. The DVDs are expensive. Yes. What's the average price in in US dollars or pounds or whatever? Um. So I think for just like an average DVD, even or porn film, even um, you're you're looking at paying like fuck. I don't know, 60, 70 bucks for like a bare bones film. Wow. Yeah, it's not cheap. Um, so I don't know if you've seen like, in, in if you have in your collection some old Japanese VHS as well, they have the price like printed on the sleeve. It's not like a sticker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen that before. And, and the original price for like these tapes are like over 100 bucks, like easily 150 bucks for like, just a bog standard horror film. Like, for whatever reason, all the films in Japan, even now in the DVD era, they're all extremely expensive. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, so much for my dream. I wanted, I wanted to go to Japan and just like sock a couple grand away and like go over there and just fill a suitcase with movies, but <laughs> that's pretty expensive. <laughs> I think I mean if you can find like the secondhand stores, then it's yeah you can you can get like a really good haul, but just you can't buy new. Yeah. <laughs> but I think because of the the volume at which Japan makes its porn, you can find a lot of shit secondhand. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So we t- kind of talked a little bit about uh, the popularity of of these extreme Japanese films within the U.S. and Europe. What are hmm. some um, American and European films that within the extreme horror world that have gained popularity over in Japan, like what do they think about the American guinea pig films, for example, and, and things like that? Well, that's a good question. Um, I have, well, the America, the first two American guinea pigs have been released in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I, I attended a screening with, uh, what's the name? Kaoru Adachi. He was, the, he did like, he directed Squirm Fest and and um, a terrible meal, and he's the owner or the, the guy who bought like Faces of Death Japan and did uh, Death File and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I attended a screening of those like American guinea pig films as well as um, some of his like weird fucked up porn stuff um, here in Osaka, and there are, there are mixed mixed responses. But they, I mean, they go down well for the most part, but I think the thing that really surprised me is that um, so many Japanese people love Return of the Living Dead. (laughs) (laughs) Really? That's funny. They they all know it. That's cool. I don't know anyone in Japan, in England who's seen it, to be honest. Like it wasn't a film that I saw until like quite a lot later. Um, into my adult years, I actually finally watched it. But um, you kind of talk to the average Joe, but not like a horror nerd or something, and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, 
Return of the Living Dead. But I fucking love that film. Wow. And that's always been that one thing that really stood out. Like, well, why why do you know it? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there was just like it it uh had a a big market when it first got released and it was just that one of those things that like everyone's seen, you know? Like okay, kinda yeah. like the Exorcist in the US, like everyone knows the Exorcist, whether you're a horror fan or not. You know, it was mm-hmm. a it was a big mm-hmm. hit when it came out. I wonder if I wonder if Return of the Living Dead had that kind of impact when it first was screened. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. But it's, it's just weird. It's so weird for that. Of, of, all, the, of all the films, like, why why that? I mean, it's a good film, but... Yeah. yeah and there, there's, like, flyers and posters, and I, I find pamphlets everywhere of it. It's just weird. It's, like, it seems it had a lot more, like, commercial success here. I mean, I don't know about America, but in England, yeah, definitely. It's popular here. I mean, it's but it's kind of just I would just throw it in the list of other uh just kind of like fun campy horror movies, you know? Like if someone said, sure. "Oh, we're going to do a double bill of like Evil Dead and Return of the Living Dead." I'd be like, "All right." You know? But <laughs> it's great, but there are a dime a dozen, right? There's yeah. so many of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, weird. Kind of going back to your collection, uh, I was wondering, like, what are some of your prized possessions out of all of the things that you have? Um, I gotta say, like, well, going back to my cyberpunk stuff, like Metal Days, which is the unreleased film by Shoza Vakui, um, the Garrus tapes that I have, like, I absolutely love them. Um, I have a a uh, hand-drawn regurgitated sacrifice by Lisa Valentine, which was cool. Um, and I got like some signed stuff as well, which which is really nice. Like the um, I got like a signed Tetsuo VHS, and then Organ, uh, directed by Kei Fujiwara, who was the actress in Tetsuo, and uh, made her own film Organ. I met up with her like a couple of years ago. Who she now runs like a cat cafe wow, that's cool. <laughs> in, in, in Tokyo. And um, yeah, so like some like sign stuff and some like personalized stuff. But I think, yeah, Metal Days is probably like my most treasured item. Because it's like, it was, it was released on VHS in 92 to commemorate... Um, the the release of Pinocchio 964. It was a film that Shoshu made um, when he was a university student. And it was only released in like 100 units. And just to think how many actually survived to this point. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's just, there's just a very small handful left in the world and to actually have a copy of that. And it's just another one of those films that never made it onto DVD. Um, so that's definitely one of my, uh, my highlights that's awesome, man. That's cool. It's it's awesome when they have like a super limited release like that and you're one of the lucky few that managed to get a copy. And it sucks because I think you're right. There are people out there who don't respect their tapes. So I'm sure there's not a full hundred floating around. I'm sure that some of them may have gotten lost or destroyed at some point. Especially, yeah, man, like in Japan as well, you know, we've got earthquakes, tsunamis, we've got a lot of things just get destroyed here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have actually had the privilege of buying a couple uh, things from you um, that were added to my collection. Um, Some of your more 
kind of like bizarre fetish things that you've had um specifically uh the first volume one of cruising for sex among the akuagaria uh suicide forest and uh i was wondering if you had any knowledge about this series and kind of um and where 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 it came about is that is that like a common fetish or <laughs> i don't know this <laughs> is fucking it's the craziest thing i've ever had seen in my whole life honestly so <laughs> <laughs> yeah the um I mean, I don't think it's a common fetish. I think it's, it's very, very uh, uncommon. Uh, yeah, the Aokikahara Forest, um, it's, it's become the, 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 the number one hotspot for suicides in Japan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, that, that film, um, it's a, a porno crew who, you know, float around the outskirts of the forest and try to dispersuade potential suicide victims from killing themselves by having sex with them. Um, showing them there is more to life and and there are pleasures in life I think was the the, the point of that uh, particular porn <laughs> film uh, but, but the the story behind it and the production behind it uh, whatever I, I'm I'm not sure of uh, is another one of those films that I just came across uh, out and about like I said like there are these multiple story um porn shops in japan and you can get every fetish you can ever you can ever imagine catered for and i often buy these weird kind of fetish films as like souvenirs for my friends in england so so the uh when i went back to to england last time about my friends like one was a it was like a masturbation video but with like a cpr doll there's a bunch (laughs) of like women fucking this like upper torso of like yeah like a cpr doll. it didn't make any fucking sense another one was um people like girls like masturbating on corners of the table <laughs> so it's just this, this is the weirdest shit you could ever think of and there's a dvd for it and there's not even just like one there's a there's there are multiple series of it like if, if one actress doesn't take your fancy you can find another one of whatever particular weird earwax fetish video you know i think it's everything great. is I, for. i fucking love it honestly like the fact that there's a suicide forest porno fetish and i have volume one meaning that implying that there's another volume is just ridiculous another yeah. another thing that i uh purchased from you is wet wet too which is like a shampoo fetish and I watched that as well, and I and I was like, I love that this is a series. Like, <laughs> and and a lot of, I watched the whole thing, and and not all of them resulted in sex. There was a couple of them where it was just chicks washing their hair. Oh, see, that's that's important. <laughs> <laughs> Those fetish feeders, Sometimes you just want to see them wash their hair, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's weird, like everything is catered for and it's great i mean because you don't feel like such a fucking weirdo going in and buying whatever like weird fetish film you have because there is definitely someone else buying most possibly something weirder than the one you have you know yeah so another question i have another benefit of living in japan is you kind of get to meet a lot of the iconic filmmakers and people um from that part of the world and mm. i am a personal major fan of kiyotaka surasaki 
and you've mm. had the pleasure of meeting him. And I was wondering mm. how you ended up meeting him and what he's like as a person and um, and just kind of the details around that. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, all those like meetups, there, there are so many events here that cater for the, the weird and wonderful and the maniacal out here. It's like, you know, as I previously mentioned, like the screening, like I went to a cinema screening of Squamfest, which is insane. <laughs> And so obviously, yeah, like, um, what's his name? Kaoru Adachi, the director, was there. Um, again, I've, I've met Shota Fukui a dozen times. I met Kei Fujiwara. Like, you, you meet these these iconic people that you never in a million years thought you would have the chance to meet, like, as, as a foreigner, you know, from my, myself, from this small town in England. Like, um, so that's, that's one of the big reasons... Um, that you know why i'm still here and it's the thing that is the reason why japan keeps me here is because there's so much here that caters for those like horror gore hounds and the, the people that love the fucked up stuff um so how i came to meet um Tsurisaki was <sighs> my friend just invited me out for a drink uh, I, I had a pretty big bender um, as I was drinking at my friend's guest house for a few days and and one of the one of the other guys there who was like, oh do you want to go for a drink tomorrow? My friend is DJing and I think you'll get on well with him and I said oh yeah maybe and and he said yeah there's some like some pictures of dead people and stuff and he's DJing like like death metal or black metal or stuff and I was like oh, yes yeah, so it actually sounded pretty good and so, <laughs> so I went to work and then after work I mean I was, I was rocking a massive hangover um and I I pulled up to to this this venue as <laughs> this dude in like a balaclava it was like like blaring out black metal and I thought this is actually pretty good um I poked my head in and it was all of Tsurisaki's pictures on, on the wall. And I was like, oh, fuck, when you said it's like pictures of dead people, I didn't think it was like this guy's <laughs> pictures of dead people. And um, and so, you know, I sat down and it was a nice sociable event. And then he, he was there. He was just kind of just like chilling out, um, sitting down, having a beer, talking to people. And... So I just approached him, you know, I said, do you want me to sit down? He said, yeah, go ahead. And we just probably, we sat down and talked for for a good, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes about all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, Orozco, um, the, his porn um, porn industry, like when he, when he was a porn director. Mm-hmm. That film recently got released by Massacre, didn't it? Paranoid Garden got released. That's the one, that's the one, yeah. And we, you know, we just talked about all kinds of stuff, not just his films or his pictures, but you know, the, the benefits of social media and Facebook and how he can like talk to so many people, like as opposed to before where he used to have to like write to people in letters in broken Spanish to go over and like photograph them or something. Like he was a very, very nice chatty person. That's um, awesome. He didn't appear to care how much of what he said i understood or not he just kept going he kept talking about all these really cool stories um 
so I was, try, you know, trying to listen with my Japanese ear, just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the fuck, what's, what's he saying? Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> but it was, it was a very, very nice, approachable man. Um, and then in the end, he brought us all champagne and, and made a toast and, and, yeah, just carried on listening to black metal and, and drinking for the, for the remaining few hours. That's awesome, man. That sounds like a really cool day, really cool night. I it was actually... a very good turn of events, yeah. <laughs> I actually wrote to him and asked him if he wanted to be on this podcast, but he kind of like admitted that his English isn't good enough to to have a conversation. Um, right. So, I mean, I don't know. I maybe I need to start practicing Japanese. But that's right. really, I'm I'm really uh, envious and and happy for you that you got to to sit down and talk with him. Thank you. I think he's a very approachable person from from well, just from my experience with him, he seems very happy to talk to a lot of people and i see so many like people in the community with stuff like signed by him and um so i think like his kind of fan service is above and beyond um obviously despite the the slight language barrier he is a very approachable person yeah i mean definitely i've written to him several times asking him to sign things or if he had anything available to sell and if he's got it He's, mm. he's willing to sign it for you. He's very, yeah, his, his fan service is amazing. That's awesome. That's really cool. But for a guy like who's seen that much and his, whose content is so intense, like <laughs> it's always nice to just to see like a happy face on the other side, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of my final questions is, do you have any current projects that you're working on? Anything coming up that we can look forward to? Yes. Um, so I've, uh, after difficulty breathing, I, um, I did my three short films, which I didn't pay too much, uh, attention to or put too much effort into. And I've since like, I'm since ready to actually make a, a proper horror film again. Um, so I have just actually finished filming my first feature film, um, which is very much in the same vein as difficulty breathing. It's another intense, psychological horror um and it's yeah i'm gonna say it, it's it's in the same universe as difficulty breathing if you will that's awesome man that's really exciting uh do you have uh an estimate on when it's gonna get uh released uh i think it'll be a while to be honest with you um i'm hoping maybe for like next year's summer i'm gonna try to get some like screenings sorted out for but I'm going to like try and actually put it out there. I'm going to try to do some festival runs with it. Uh, maybe see if I can get some international distribution with it. It's um, I haven't actually sat down and watched any of the footage I shot, but I just know I've, I know I've just shot so much stuff. So I should have at least something to put together and um, hopefully be able to apply for some sort of film festivals with. Um, but I know the editing process is going to be an absolute pain in the ass because... It is um, definitely the, the most ambitious project I have ever done today. And again, like all my previous films, it has literally just been me on my own. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll see how it all sticks together in the edit. Well, hell yeah, man. That's super exciting. I'm glad you're, uh, you're keeping it going with making films. Thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see how it goes. Uh, I'm, I'm very nervous with it, to be honest. Um, 
but yeah, it's it's at least a step back into a horror and not just like vending machines or shit, you know. I know how that goes, man. Like I after I shoot one of my films, I basically like have a panic attack and think that it's all awful. And then yeah. I give myself like a week and then I start editing it and I'm like, oh, it's actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> if, it, if, if it always goes that way, then that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually pretty good. <laughs> um, well, do you have any final thoughts or anything that you'd like to plug or say to your fans before we come to an end? I feel like if anyone actually got through this whole interview of me rambling on for like an hour and oh, it's an hour and a half, fucking hell, then thank you so much. Um, Thank you everyone who listened and thank you anyone who's taken the time to like watch my films um or review them um like it's it's very mind-boggling to me that someone would kind of take time out of their uh their day put their like harder money towards like investing in something that i made it's um it's very surreal to me so thank you everyone who's ever ever done that and in terms of my next film, um, if you liked anything that I did before, especially Difficulty Breathing, hopefully there'll be something more that you can like um, since I look forward to that isn't vending machines. <laughs> well, awesome, man. Thank you. I enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much for having me, man. It's been, uh, it's been good fun. <laughs> All right. See ya. <laughs> All right, take it easy, man. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club. If you're interested in checking out my other work, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Cinema's Underbelly, where I analyze and review obscure, obscene, and controversial cinema, as well as check out my label, Putrid Productions. Until next time, this is the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club.